Um, we're going to get started momentarily here. I just wanted to give you a heads up. We are live streaming the event on um, Facebook tonight. So if you're not comfortable with your um, video or um, name being shown, if you want to keep your camera off um, and even feel free to, you know, remove your last name from um, your Zoom screen name or whatever, it'll only show the speaking person on the feed. But just so you're all aware, um, that is happening. Um, but otherwise, enjoy the evening, and I'm going to pass it over to Jacob to uh, get us started with the welcome video. Hi, and welcome to Viewpoints, a public project inspired by conversations held during the Rural Talks to Rural 2020 conference. The purpose of the program is to engage and promote a variety of perspectives on contemporary and global issues through a rural lens. Each session will run between one hour and one hour and 30 minutes and will be recorded in front of a live audience. The material will then be edited for the CCRC podcast with highlights from the session posted on Instagram. Tonight's episode is called People, Place and Time. Indigenous Perspectives on Climate. The host is Byron Flecky, who will be joined by First Nation and Indigenous guests from across the planet. A United Nations report on climate said this, climate change poses threats and dangers to the survival of our planet, and it is deeply felt in the Indigenous communities worldwide. Even though Indigenous peoples contribute the least to greenhouse emissions, Indigenous peoples are vital to and active in the many ecosystems that inhabit their lands and territories and help enhance the resilience of these ecosystems. In addition, Indigenous peoples interpret and react to the impacts of climate change, drawing on traditional knowledge to find solutions as we try and deal with the climate crisis. Nigerian writer Ben Okri wrote, Change your story and you might very well change your life. If we can collectively change our story, how might that change positively impact life on the planet? The creative team that helped put Viewpoints together includes Byron Flecky, Lois Anderson, Harveen Sandu, Bill Dow, Al Lazan, L.J. Prabaharan, Jacob Crosby, Caitlin Peters, and Pete Smith. I'd like to now introduce you to the host of tonight's episode, Byron Flecky. Good evening, everyone. Um, <clears throat> My name is Byron Flecky. It's good to see everybody uh, today and good to see all the names and initials where there are no faces. Um, I'm coming to you from what I refer to as occupied Kwantlen territory. And uh, there's something in Canada called the land question. It's a polite way or a euphemistic way of saying uh, some questions need to be answered here um, and specifically in BC and so until the land question is answered, um, I'll just keep calling it, I think, Occupied Kwantlen Territory. And so I'm coming from uh, what would be known today as Langley, 
And um, something I think that's on a lot of people's mind is uh, news out of what's today known as Saskatchewan from Cowess's First Nation um, in a long line and a long history of uh, uh, residential school um, outcomes. And so part of, part of who I am and how I'm coming to the presentation today is as a, a Diablo family member out of the community Hocklip. And so I'm Statlium. Um, I'm the first generation of our family and my siblings to not go to the Kamloops school, quote unquote school, and the first to raise our own children. And so um, as a guest here on Kwantlen's land, I just want to say this is who I am and where I'm coming from. And let people know that um, trying to come from a, a good place or a right place while we while we get into the topic at hand tonight. And so uh, it's, good to, it's good to be here and it's good to see everybody. And um, we have some really great uh, guests tonight. And what I, what I plan to do is offer some reflections on people, place and time, and then really just move out of the way and let our guests talk and then, and then moderate and maybe ask some questions if, if, if we have to. But I, I feel like it will just um, take on a life of its own. And, and the order that we'll go in when I'm done is um, we will go with uh, Betty Bastian, C. Uh, Kapanaki, I believe. Hopefully I didn't get that too wrong. And then um, Graham Reed is with us. And then Alejandro Argumito, Argumeto, I believe. And then um, we'll also play a clip from uh, Tero Mustanen uh, from Finland. And because of the timing and the time zones, it was uh, impossible to have him join us here tonight. So we recorded um, an interview last week. And we will also be releasing the full interview as its own standalone episode. But tonight, instead uh, of where he would normally be live in the roster, we'll play the clip and then we'll continue on for some more reflections before I wrap it up with hopefully something witty or nice. And uh, so with that in mind, um, I'll do my opening sort of spiel, which I, I hope is just to get some of the, the juices flowing or something to reflect on, something to agree with, something to disagree with. Um, we'll see how it goes, but uh, I, prep, I prepared it here. So people, place, and time, that's the title of the episode. And I think these three things might help frame a conversation on climate and Indigenous perspectives. And I think this because these three things are perhaps the core of our reality. Uh, John Trudell, when explaining that we are the human beings, said that the bone, flesh, and blood, the DNA of the human, the bone, flesh, and blood is literally made up of the metals, minerals, and liquids of the earth. So we are parts of the earth, shapes of the earth, forms of the earth. Uh, he said that that's the reality. Nothing will ever change that reality. But what does change and can be changed, sometimes by force, I would add, is our perception of that reality. He phrased it as our perceptional relationship to reality. So how do we perceive our shared reality? And how does that perception relate to climate or our understanding of climate? And how does that perception allow us to contribute to or influence climate? People, place, and time. Uh, something this has me thinking of, which is also from John Trudell, is that we all have tribal roots. We all come from a tribal past. I think those tribal roots have a lot more in common with each other than we have in common today. The things we have in common around the world today are, I think, 
more likely related to colonial expansions and imperial ambitions of one flavor or another. So they're forced or coerced similarities. Now that's a simplification, but I I'm going to run with it. Uh, I think the further we get from those tribal roots, from that understanding of our relationship to the earth, the more potential we have for disastrous human-made or human-contributed changes in climate. This is not to say that all things related to the climate are 100% the fault of humans. I don't think we're that powerful, but I think there's an awful lot we can control. And once we know better, we should be doing better, unless we are a long way or a long time from our tribal roots. So with people, place, and time in mind, I think it's worth exploring or at least momentarily thinking about how memory fits into our reality. Let's consider something like social amnesia. Uh, what do we know about our current place and time? And what do we know about the people in it? It is easy to forget our reality when recent perceptions are dressed up in things like progress. Although at time, things seem a little too backwards for me to call them progress. That doesn't stop the argument and the word from being used regularly, but it does help with the forgetting. When you get to control the language, you can control the perception of reality. That being said, I think the bond between people and place over time is too strong to be forgotten easily. This is why Trudell talks about how the people who came over here on a boat had experienced 400 years of this forced perception change. When Trudell says that Columbus was a virus, he means Columbus brought over a perception of reality that was forced on the tribes of Europe and the disease feeds on the human spirit. So that concept, that understanding of us as the human beings in our shape or form of the earth was not a part of their worldview anymore. That change was happening for the 20th generation by the time Columbus got here. That change was required to suppress our memories so that progress can take place. And this progress essentially serves what Trudell called the industrial ruling class or the ethnic rich minority and what Chomsky would call the people who rule the world. So we have this motivated forgetting and it's motivated in the most crucial manner for human beings and that's through survival. So we have a survival-based amnesia. Uh, who can blame anyone for participating in that forgetting? Um, but I don't think it worked. And I think not only are indigenous peoples continued existence uh, around the planet an example of that, but I think in the Western civilized world, there are little indicators that the suppressed perception of reality exists. And in those forgotten places of our minds is the true key to our survival as a species. I, I like to joke with my white friends when they get all outdoorsy. I, I call it cute. I say, see, she's calling back. She's calling you back and you, you just don't realize it. Uh, sometimes people will say it's good for them. They feel better. They get fresh air, exercise. It isn't like being in the city. The list goes on and on and on. And all I can do uh, is say, yes, that's what I said. Um, so with people, place and time in mind, I'll get out of the way and turn it over to our guests, starting with Betty. Oh. Where is it? Oh, no. Okay, I don't know what's happening. 
I have no idea what's happening. Peter, is is this when I come on? Okay. Thank yes. You. Yes, Betty. Yeah, you thank do. Thank you, Sherry. <laughs> okay, here's my screen. Okay. Welcome. Okay, good connection, Matsimu. I welcome you all and uh, greetings in my language. Uh, for the uh, for the time, I'd let, I'm just going to jump into my presentation. So, the people, place, and time theme. I'm going to be speaking about uh, through the lens of Six Gates to be, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy here in Alberta, and uh, the lens that we see people, place, and time is through Atsimma uh, P. It's the sacred and delicate balance of existence. So what I'm going to do uh, in the presentation is draw you into what our world was like before colonization. And before I do that, I'd like to just honor the, the children that are found in the, in the graves. And uh, these schools were places where sacred relationships were severed. In our language, we call it Ibonitakskua. It's literally the severing of sacred relationships. And it is a form of genocide when you understand that it is the collective soul womb and it has catastrophic consequences. As you can see in our daily living in Canada, all over the globe, it's, it created an existential crisis for generations. So we find ourselves in an environmental challenge and the possibility of renewal. Through globalization and colonization, they've redefined who, who we are as human beings. And we've been pacified into complacency. We continue to accept the exploitation and the destruction of our planetary system. We are the most vulnerable, yet we live in deforestation, toxic chemical wastes. We live in a false sense of security. Our identities are that of consumerism for economic growth. The carnage of increasing global warming has produced mass extinctions of our biodiversity. It has brought drought, floods, fires, and recently the pandemic, all causes of a global decline. Language creates worlds and it distinguishes humanity and embodies practices for existence. At this time, I'd like to quote Black Elk who said, you have noticed that everything an Indian does is in a circle. And that is because the power of the world 
always works in circles. Our humanity is defined as it's the unity consciousness with systems for safeguarding structural balance of the universe. is our practices for human existence. It's the participatory responsibilities aligned with the organic world of Sikhigaitsutapi. Unity consciousness is ceremony. Ceremonies are sources of creation. We activate the energy fields of cosmic alliances and natural forces, which contribute to human consciousness. Ceremonies embody the science of the cosmic energy, source of life, as observed in the vibrations of songs, dance, language, energetic fields of vibrations where co-creation occurs Fields of vibrations where co-creation moves something from the nothingness and alters the physical reality. And we see that in our medicine wheels, the lunar cycles, sweat lodges, teepee designs, the buffalo rock that you see on this slide. Through the unity consciousness, we have our collective responsibilities and we understand them through Our humanity is a state of consciousness that merges with the greater world and the cosmos. It's experienced through the alignment with forces and energies of cosmological cycles known to us as our natural alliances. For example, the thunder pipes. The divine nature of our humanity is revealed through reciprocal responsibilities with the greater cosmos. We experience them, we experience them through dreams, transfers, land-based knowledge, cults and often sacred sites. Our integrity is essential for planetary sustainability. Our way of life must remain intact. Integrity is centered on our connection to the sacred. Our existence is atimapi, the awareness of the sacred balance of life. Our purpose, kamutani, participating for the renewal of life. Our structure is through experience, knowledge is transferred. Our humanity, the embodiment of relational knowledge. Our place is the universe. Our existence is timeless and our participation is required by the universe. 
Humanity is the alignment with each Bhattabhi of the source of life. Ceremonies are synchronicities with the cycles of creation and renewal. We are timeless. No boundaries, no space. Our homes, the TP, is the universe reflecting our unity consciousness. Up here is the stars. On the other side is the dipper. This is Pleiades. We call it the bunch stars. This is our alliance, our natural alliance who comes to us in dreams and transfers us gifts for sustainability. Behind here is Morning Star. And the east door opens the new day. We face the sun as it rises. The mountains, the rocks, the valleys. So this is the universe and that is our home. Our universal alliances are indispensable for global sustainability. The Blackfoot have sustained their world for over 10,000 years, evidenced by carbon dating up to stone flint. These dates predate the Neolithic period of Stonehenge and the Egyptian pyramids. Indigenous science places people at the center of the universe. Their hearts aligned with the wisdom of the ages and connecting to the experiences of sustainability. My last words are, are to, to provide you with the thoughts, the teachings of Bukowski. His journey to the sun is the embodiment of six gates to be. And he leaves us with this. In the giving of yourself to something greater is the ultimate challenge. And in giving up yourself for the service of humanity, a form of death alters patterns of consciousness. An experience illuminated by revelations of wholeness. That is who we are as human beings. And that's our place in the universe of all of time. That is our understanding. I'll leave you with those thoughts and thank you very much. I think we organized this so, so I might go next. Uh, but uh, Chimigwich, uh, Betty, for opening us in such a, a grounded and important way. It's, uh, it's hard to follow that. And it's hard to, uh, to think about the way in which that applies to the conversation that we're having today. But I, I, I find it's also very simple. And so maybe I'll, I'll be able to touch on that. So Anin, uh, Graham Reed, Indigenous Cause, Ottawa, Nunjaba, Anishinaabe, and Dow. 
I thought it would be uh, useful to, uh, to follow the uh, introduction and framing of Byron to kind of situate myself uh, through the, the kind of concepts of, of people, place, and time uh, to, uh, to, to have these conversations that we're having. So I, I thought I'd start with, with people. Um, so um, as I, I alluded to in, in that very brief introduction, uh, I, uh, I grew up in Ottawa. Um, my maternal connections are uh, Anishinaabe to the Great Lakes. Um, area and my great-grandfather was born on Okumokong. Um, just like Byron and I'm sure many of the folks who have shared um, the news the news today in, in Kawasis and a couple of weeks ago in Kamloops, uh, I think touches very dear to you know those who who live with with that intergenerational trauma and, and two generations. My nan's father and, and grandmother both attended residential school around uh, Manitoulin Island. Um, and uh, want to, to acknowledge uh, them and uh, the conversation that we're having now. Um, my dad's side is, is English and Scottish. And uh, as I mentioned, I, I grew up in Ottawa. In terms of where I am today, I'm on um, Malahat and Cowichan territory, um, just north, uh, kind of northwest of uh, Victoria on Vancouver Island. I'm a, an uninvited guest here and, and normally I reside in uh, Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh lands, what's uh, currently known as Vancouver and have for the last year or so. And I think that centrality of land is so important for the conversation that we're having today. And I hope that, you know, I saw one of you just introduce yourself and, and where you are in relationship to, uh, to whose territory you're on. Uh, but I think that's a constructive way of situating oneself, especially in the conversation that I think Betty brought up, which is really about um, how do we regain balance in, uh, you know, our relationships with the land around us. So I would definitely encourage you to, to think about that in the concept of, of this conversation. And then, and then time. And I thought, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting time to have these conversations and to think about, you know, the growing recognition of the role of Indigenous peoples within the uh, multiple and intersecting crises that, that humanity seems to be facing, whether we talk about it in the context of, of climate and the, uh, I guess, magnified impacts within what we currently call Canada. You know, we know that Canada is subject to uh, warming at, at double the global magnitude of the world and triple in, in Canada's Arctic. If the trajectories that are, you know, currently identified in, you know, Western science are accurate, that means Canada's looking at an average of anywhere between six and nine degrees by 2100, which, you know, has pretty devastating impacts for who we think about and what we identify as Canadians. So, would, uh, would be important to acknowledge that, but also acknowledge that the fact that, that Indigenous folks have been talking about this in, in a long t for a long time, and uh, that, that you know, it's, it's nice that that kind of broader society is listening. And I think, you know, the first time that I actually met, uh, met Alejandro was in the context of, of COP25, um, which is a part of the 
annual UN meetings uh, to advance something that many people know, which is the Paris Agreement. And in the Paris Agreement, you know, uh, state parties made the commitment to, uh, you know, maintain global warming under 2.5 or under two degrees and do everything that they can to keep it under 1.5. At that time, you know, indigenous relatives from around the world were calling for one degrees because of the very real and transformative impacts of, you know, what a one degree future might look like. And so, you know, it's interesting to think about where we are now and where we're projected to go when we compare that to the conversations that have preceded not only the Paris Agreement, but also the, de the Rio declarations in 92. There are several conferences of Indigenous peoples that occurred before that, that kind of collective recognition of, you know, the concept of sustainability and the creation of uh, those, those three UN uh, bodies. I also think it's, you know, relevant for, and, and it comes back to uh, the um, really important and grounding points that, that Betty raised, um, and it's funny, I can't help but think when Betty you speak that you remind me of my grandmother. So um, thank you for that. Um, but the, uh, the role that we carry in these spaces, and so, you know, for those who don't know, I've been working um, at the Assembly of First Nations for the last five odd years doing domestic international climate policy work, um, doing my PhD at, at Guelph. And I think, you know, one of the opportunities that I see within this space and the work that we do is really embodying the, uh, the kind of teaching associated with the grass dancer. And this, this came to, to a colleague uh, of mine um, several years ago, uh, talking about it in the concept, in the context of conservation. And in that context, the, the teaching of the grass dancer was shared about um, what is the role of the grass dancer in creating that space for ceremony to happen? And how can we think about the role that we're doing and the uh, you know, foundational requirements to open up that space for, for nations to enter? Many nations who are you know, still navigating the current legacy of you know, the project of, of colonization. And we see that it you know, rears its ugly head every single day in the lives of indigenous peoples. And so um, I guess it's important to think about how do we make sure that that space for ceremony uh, is, is appropriate and is um, uh, you know, grounded in the um, tenets of you know, different knowledge systems. Betty introduced uh, one Anishinaabe we talk about in, in the, the seven grandfather teachings and, and using that as you know, guiding principles to open up that space. But I think part of that is also how do we think about that? And so what I want to put into the virtual circle is the concept that we're working on around uh, the First Nations climate lens. And, and when we think about, you know, how do we reframe climate conversations uh, away from the, you know, overemphasis on reducing GHGs towards a lens through which we look at, you know, those root cause problems that, that I think Byron really introduced well um, in the opening remarks. And the way in which we're conceptualizing this is kind of four concentric circles. You know, the first concentric circle is that, that natural law 
um, that that was uh, articulated very eloquently. The second is really the acknowledgement of, of the legislative policy and regulatory context in which Indigenous peoples operate, not only um, based on the confines of you know, colonial legislation like the India Act, but also the um, you know, now uh, royally proclaimed um, legislation on the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the calls for justice from the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, uh, and the kind of litany of, you know, Supreme Court um, cases that have affirmed, you know, Indigenous rights, even though, you know, the model of uh, recognition by the crown is, is not sufficient to recognize those inherent rights that stem from, from the creator. The, the next circle that, that we talk about um, is this notion of, of uh, First Nations lived reality. And that's really about how are we embedding the appropriate power and equity considerations in you know, an analysis of climate? How do we really think about climate as fundamentally interlinked with all of the other things that that we seem to talk about in in the media whether it's you know clean drinking water whether it's a shortage of housing on reserve whether it's inequitable uh, dollar provisions for education all of which are, are really important when thinking about you know that that uh, that climate sphere and the final circle really i think gets back to um, the uh, really important contribution that that betty provided about that grounding in first nations worldviews and i you know i see this as a recognition that you know indigenous knowledge systems or first nations knowledge systems embody not only knowledge right they embody values legal orders and governance all of which are foundational to the appropriate consideration in their role of uh, the co-production of knowledge or the co-decision making that really acknowledges and uplifts the role of Indigenous nations in what we now call as Canada. And I think, you know, together, the, the notion of those four concentric circles is really about bringing into focus what are the solutions required to foundationally address and reframe the conversation in a way that acknowledges the uh, relational dimension, political dimension, and sociocultural dimension of the problem that we're talking about today. And so I hope that you know, through the space that we're creating, we can start to think about this differently and start to think about it in a way that, you know, really sees the interconnections of that, that project of decolonization and that project of decarbonization. And how do we do those things simultaneously uh, in a way that um, also uplifts the rights and responsibilities of Indigenous peoples? And I, I thought I'd close with, you know, the uh, reframing associated with that lens and the work that we're doing really, you know, first begins to, to kind of reassert the gaze of um, the problems associated with climate and biodiversity to their root causes. How do we talk about colonialism and the extractive tendencies of capitalism, whether for, you know, the land, for women, for people, uh, all of which are kind of root causes. How do we think about the overemphasis on uh, carbon as the, the main goal? And look, Atlas is excited about it. Um, and how do we get to the place we, where we start to conceptualize climate solutions as you know, language revitalization and cultural revitalization and really getting back to that, that role 
of balance and renewal that that Betty spoke about. And I think just to close that by doing that, you know, we really shift this conversation away from, you know, tenants baked within uh, scarcity and competition and accumulation towards those embedded within abundance and cooperation and relationality. And really, we then get to the space where, you know, we're talking about, you know, people, land and reciprocity, or as Byron framed it, people, place and time. And I, I think that's, that's an exciting place to be. So Chimingwich for that opportunity and uh, look forward to our conversations. So Jacob, you can play the video now and welcome Changent Circle. Chaimantas wiltaramos kani, chaimantas puririramoni. Pachamamama pagutaru waspa, apukunama no kamanyamusa, kikarulyaktapi kantianakipa, kikarulyaktapi kantianakipa. Imanispata kutira pusari, haikanispata kutira pusari.
El Parque de la Papa es una asociación de cinco comunidades indígenas o, o andinas. Es una área de conservación de agrobiodiversidad de papas nativas, pues también ahí se está conservándose todo nuestro conocimiento tradicional y todas nuestras eh, culturas vivas y también llamado como un patrimonio biocultural e indígena. Es un paisaje cultural, ¿no? ¿Por qué un parque de la papa? No es solamente mantener una gran diversidad genética, pero también la historia de nuestro pueblo. Esta coevolución entre los quechuas y la papa nativa hace posible que nuevas expresiones genéticas puedan surgir. y que estas otras que existen puedan seguir adaptándose a estos cambios que en los Andes se ven y que son dramáticos. El cambio climático no es un fenómeno simple. Se necesita ver cómo se puede crear la alimentación del futuro. Pensamos hacer este viaje a Svalbard, donde una comisión del Parque de la Papa llevará las semillas porque esto no se puede responder solos.
together to preserve biodiversity for future generations use them in their benefit. enter the mountain and enter a door and come into where it's minus six degrees all year around because of the permafrost. So um, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> important that is having the farmers here bringing potato. Potato is one of the five big crops in the world that feed around 75-80% of the population nowadays. In situ preservation what you do, the new varieties that you have been growing up to 5,000. This is really a part of the challenge that we have for the future, have those varieties available be used in the future. To use those genes for bring resistance to other uh, possible varieties. So we thank you. I've been uh, um, talking to my colleagues here and we have very strong and mixed emotions. Um, this uh, for us is um, a true spiritual journey. The potato's history goes back to the beginning of time for us. All our culture have a bowl or kue bowl with a potato, we are potato people. We have it 
when we are born, when we, when we get married, when we get baptized, and uh, they grow very close to us that uh, they are part of the family. And um, we've been talking about how this part of us, this family of us, is going to stay here. And there are our mixed emotions because we're not just living genes or tribes, but also a family. Mamakocha Keilahtape, Sumahta Kankawarinki, Keitukui Mukukunata, Kipawinia Ikuna, Mihunampa. Kei montaña kaska sumafreki mama anya sumafta kuidanki wakaychanki kei mukunchiskunata. Peru suyupi ausangati itusirai hatun nukaiko kanki yanapahni apuiku anya munaita keita uiwangi kawari munki. Kunanka makikiman hapichikiku kei mukuikuta nukaikupa Mihunaikupa kepawakuna mihunampa, hina kepangmanta mundundi runakunama mihuchinaikipa. Kocheiraiko no kaiku keita aparikiko, keiwa, tukurikamu ikiko, tukuisumu ikumana. Yaktacheleimantas no kahamuran. Thank you very much. Um, um, I would like to make a couple of comments in relation to this. Um, 
video which captures this journey that um, my brothers and sister from the Potato Park took uh, hiking around 900 seeds from the collection that the Potato Park has in, um, in Cusco, which amounts to around 1,400 varieties. In the whole region, we have around 5,000 uh, varieties of potatoes. So diversity is one of our characteristics. Um, the video itself was built around a zone, as you've seen it, that um, our sister Brisaida composed on the spot, which captured her feelings. Uh, the feelings that she was experiencing that moment in terms of place where she was up in the Arctic and drawing this connection with our ancestors back in the Andes where we revere the mountains. Mountains are sacred, but also mountains play a role. For instance, in the Potato Park, mountains are elected as authorities and they have to uh, fulfill uh, their duties in terms of providing water, in terms of providing pasture, medicinal plants, and taking care for people in this world where the realm of people, the realm of the sacred, and the realm of the wild, which humans do not control, have to live in community. And here, uh, what I would like to um, underline in terms of this conversation is the fact that this worldview, which is holistic, non-anthropocentric, tell us one of the things that I, in my opinion, has caused most of the problems or all the problems we face with this multiple crisis that people, uh, my brother and sister that uh, spoke before had referred to, which is this idea of human exceptionalism. We think that humans are up to in, the, in this, pyramid of evolution. And of course, certain kinds of humans are why at the top. And this conception, uh, this framework creates this idea also of white supremacy because certain kinds of people are superior to other peoples. And then, uh, you know, the rest of other species are inferior, so they became non-related. Uh, they became, you know, uh, materials to be exploited, natural resources, as we call it. And this is very, I think, very uh, problematic. And the, the, this video tell us that that type of uh, conception uh, does imply in the communities and many indigenous peoples where all relations, the concept of uh, relationality and closeness, familiarity continues to play. 
And the current pandemic also makes us reflect where a virus has just, you know, put us in confinement. A little thing that's more intelligent than humans that easily can mutate, change, and keep us uh, in our boxes because we think that with technology, with science, uh, you know, we can dominate them. And I think we are wrong because we have crossed the line, have transgen have uh, modified many things that uh, we are just paying the consequences. And I would probably while walking, walking into a, an era of many crises that are gonna have to be continued. Um, climate change is a reality. Um, you know, the uh, species extinction, um, the uh, disparity in society that uh, otherwise we dreamed will end uh, continues to be widening. And all that, um, you know, also, uh, in my opinion, brings this other thing that the, the, this video um, tries to uh, touch upon, which is complexity and how indigenous peoples understand the world as a complex system and adapt to it, recognizing that the other aspects of the relationality they have need to be respected in order to have a balance in, through a reciprocal relationship. So but, um, uh, also, uh, I think there's other aspects of it, which is the sovereignty uh, in terms of food systems, in terms of the rights to, to keep our own culture, the right to uh, maintain uh, our own type of seeds and uh, different uh, and uh, different uh, ways of cooking and using plants and food and just sharing it, uh, which is something that we have lost because now we depend on an industrial system that only provides highly processed food, which also is part of this big problem. So um, in, in exercising uh, this sovereignty, uh, the Potato Park uh, communities exercise a sovereignty which is relational. It's local and as you see, international because mountains in Svalbard are, are also relatives to the mountains in Peru, but by being recognized mountain to mountain and people to people, there is some certain type of sovereignty that people acquire and what that, that's what matters in terms of their own um, spiritual and material health um, and well-being. So um, it, uh, we have been working with this idea or this concept of relational sovereignty to see where we can uh, accept uh, sovereign rights in different um, scales. 
And this is an example of this. I think um, my time is up. Um, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh, all three of you. That was really beautiful. Um, we're going to load up now the video of uh, a section of the interview with Carol Mustanen. If you if you don't know who he is, um, you can go to the website uh, snowchange.org and uh, take a look there. It's pretty cool. Um, that's just one of the many things that uh, the tarot's involved in, and a few sort of reflections just off the top of my head here while we were. Uh, uh, listening to these um, guests was uh, the the role that language plays, the power language has, how, who uses it, how they use it, um, uh, the different sort of worldviews, and how uh, one involves sort of responsibility and a necessary participation with the responsibility, and the other involves um, resources to be uh, used including uh human beings and so i think um some of the some of the things have been really great like with graham's um mentioning about reasserting the lens or changing the lens i think if if we let somebody else control the framework then we're already limited to our responses because they're going to necessarily be a part of that framework and and can't step outside of them and for um what we might call say something like a capitalist system, which uh, maybe I'll get in trouble, but maybe I won't. Um, uh, the world existed before that. And so it is possible to step outside of the lens and, and sort of think, and so to change the the, uh, the viewpoint from it. And so um, we will put the, the video up now. And for the other guests, um, Taro sort of anticipated one of my challenging questions that I was, I was going to ask. And so it, it comes up, uh, when I bring up the short novel, I Am Legend. And so uh, feel free to respond to that challenge uh, or any of it um, that, that Carol brings up because it's all quite beautiful. And so once the video is over, uh, Betty, you could, you could uh, unmute and turn your camera on to respond if you like. Thank you, everyone. It's just so different. And uh, the way history went in different places. And uh, it's so... It takes so much effort to think you can't speak your own language. So I think we are blessed in that sense, despite the ecological damage that has happened in Finland, that the, our post ice age language is still here. And uh, it's often been cited as being one of the uh, hunter gatherer languages of Northeastern Eurasia. So there's this group of languages called Finno-Ugric peoples, the Sami, the Komi, Hanti, Finns, Estonians. Um, my takeaway from that uh, reflection is that uh, the sense of reality is being dictated and also the sense of time and the past, present and those futures to come that are trapped in that uh, line of progress. The second thing that came to my mind was the necessities of social change in places like Canada. Um, you are one of the strongest in the world in terms of a public uh, society by respecting multiple viewpoints, by 
bringing critical voices, discourses, narratives, and so on and so on, you believe that change will happen. I'm rather skeptical. I think that uh, sometimes that is it too late? Is the damage is too big? For example, if if the conceptualization of of uh, time and space can't happen using literally, uh, uh, let me put it other way, um, in in ways that are fluent in indigenous languages. And this is of course not a way to ignore the damage to the indigenous societies. The, the damage is horrible and it's, it's a catastrophe that so many of the languages are either critically endangered or have already died out. But it's still there that uh, only by fluently knowing the language and the deeper layers of the mind that's embedded in a boreal or northern linguistic reality and, and social reality, you can come to the nuances. And those are really the key in many places here on how we call for, for example, certain fish or um, certain fish that might pr predict things to come have their specific names and uh, cultural indicators or and uh, if I start to explain them in English they may, might be descriptive and to the point and they might describe the northern pike that's that's really spe specific or we can use her liver to predict the seasonal weather but it doesn't really convey the the how things are it will describe it but it doesn't doesn't convey the the essential word <laughs> that we use for that liver or northern pike or the fish and uh, that's the double loss double disassociation that came to my mind that how do you undo that of course the the healing and the the rebuilding starts what you said which is that we name how things are we name the the colonial attack and the genocide and so on. But uh, are we in a place or traditional societies and indigenous peoples, uh, the, the work to be done to come to a place of uh, rebuilding those cultural realities is immense. It's only a handful of places in the world where I have ever seen it succeeding. And uh, we should be aware of that challenge. That's some of the thoughts that came to me. Um, that was really beautiful. I think um, the nuances and the language, kind of what we actually lose in translation is a pretty important um, topic, especially as it relates to uh, climate and our understanding of it and our relationship to it. Um, something you mentioned, I had, a, I had an outro question planned, which I'll jump to now because you sort of brought it up with your skepticism, is that one of my favorite short novels is I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. And, and in it, you know, he's fighting these vampires and they've taken over the world and, and a, new, a new sort of hybrid species arises. And he's the last of the regular human beings. And uh, he's been sort of laying waste to the vampires while they've been trying to come for him. And at the very end, you know, they've, uh, somebody's tried to help him by getting him to escape and he refuses to leave his home. 
and and that's sort of what does him in is his paranoia and his refusal to to leave his home the stubbornness the same kind of stubbornness that human beings are really good at having and uh in in the sort of closing moments as he's on his way to his very public execution uh he realizes that he's he's a part of the old ways and he and he is he is legend now and so some of the things I wonder when we look at what we've done to to the planet and each other is 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 it too late? Um, are we just uh, Robert Neville sitting alone in our house refusing to leave as the new world sort of peeks around the corner? And then should we just similar to I guess Socrates take our medicine and and then become the stuff of the legends of the future? And uh, maybe there's a new human species that will come out of uh, out of our coming sort of climate catastrophes. Um, so that's one of my sort of negative ones where I would I would throw it out as a challenge and, and maybe ask if 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 you think there's any any I guess first of all if there's any hope, but also if humans deserve to uh, to continue on or just become legend. And I think. Um, I'm not I'm not pessimistic. I just put it out to to highlight sort of to highlight or motivate why people should should seriously consider some of these topics. And so do you have any thoughts on uh, taking our medicine and moving on or 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 continuing to fight fight the good fight, so to speak? <clears throat> well, the um if there is a fight and if there are things to be done, they should be based on the utmost and unsugared un <clears throat> sense of reality to the extent we can. So the first thing we should admit, whether it's Canada or Finland, is that the, um, how much and how deep the damages go. Nothing can happen before we have the self-reflection and say that uh, <clears throat> if I think of, for example, our case, 90% of the primary boreal forest in Finland over the past 75 years has been uh, handed over to the um, timber industries and the pulp mills, much like most of boreal Canada. The difficulty with what you are describing and what's, what's so central to the First Nations and Inuit struggles in Canada uh, are these these rhetorical expressions on indigenous knowledge and and um, associated rights and rebuilding and so on and so on? The the difficulty with those things in any culture, whether it's Bangladesh or Finland or Canada, is that, for example, in our case, the the um, uh, thoughts and the deep things that exist in any culture or as a basis core of any culture can only be found in the uh, undisturbed or natural systems. In our case, of course, the boreal forest. This would be the home, the source, the, the center of all of our creativity, our own names for the stars, our name for the fishing gear, or how a woman might think about their life or a painter might do whatever they do. Or we used to have these um, birch bark dances or dances associated with birch bark masks uh, in, at the time of the old re religion to honor some of the forest beings and so on and so on. Now, 
what I'm trying to say is that if you remove those central 90% um, elements of that reality by clear cutting those forests and ditching peatlands and and altering river systems that are interconnected with the with the forest you are clear cutting the mind and therefore our starting point if in our case if we have lost over 90% of our boreal forests in Finland it implies that we have then lost over 95% of our so-called traditional mind and the generation who is alive today, for example, myself born in 1970s, um, can hope to grasp or come to an understanding of, at, in my lifetime, at its best, about three to five percent of what reality consisted of to the old people. And that's our starting point. How do you rebuild from that three percent when you know that 100 years ago or 200 years ago, in our region, for example, in North Karelia, there was a whole boreal civilization of unbroken epic songs, oral histories that were then documented by Lönnrot and used by Tolkien, for example, as the basis of the elven languages in uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Um, <clears throat> I once gave a keynote at the University of Leeds and I, where Tolkien had been a professor before the time at Oxford and uh, I genuinely, or I jokingly started by saying that I'm here to collect some royalties because you took our songs and so on and so on. They didn't find it too funny, but in any case, the point being is that uh, we know the past existed. We know that the traditional society was genuine it wasn't some noble savage or fairy tale society. It was a human society. There was a lot of trouble, a lot of um, bad times, misuse of this and that. Uh, it, was, it was a human society. But um, um, one of your Inuit filmmakers, Elizabeth Illepi has said very beautifully about the past of any traditional society that the difference between today and, and uh, the past is that it was their time. They were in the position of uh, making that um, justice system or making a call when to go hunting or they decided when they get married or when they expel a person or so on and so on. And, and uh, today that, that, that reality is controlled by invisible and visible forces in a degraded landscape of those 3% of natural ecosystems remaining. And that's, that's in a way the strategic starting point when you talk about cultural revitalization. So try to answer in summary, very short to your very important question. Um, I think we will become new. There's no, no going back to anything that used to be 200 years ago. We have to, fact, we have to embrace the fact that the landscapes are now different. We have to embrace that a lot of indigenous and traditional communities are operating in in many cases in English or in a degraded capacity to maintain their languages. But there is still things to be done to be free. So the concept of freedom is still there. And no matter how many residential schools or prisons or genocides have happened, uh, if there's a people, they can still be free. And that's what we should be striving for. So the um, there are still universal 
forces, for the lack of a better term, the seen and the unseen, which, ha which have never um, left us. They are still here, despite the fact that the attack on the mind in traditional societies has been so severe by the colonial forces. Sometimes we become the enemy, like the Finns. We, we can self-colonize. We can become our own worst enemy. It doesn't always have to be the Soviets or the Can Canada or the US. It's us. You know, let's start from that. What happened with my father or their grandparents? So we, we can also be in a position of self-harm uh, by having thrown down the values and senses of reality in the past generations and also the abuse, alcoholism and suicide and whatever the case, uh, because we chose to. We don't often like to talk about this, but this is also the case that there's a tremendous uh, damages that have taken place because men mostly have embraced really bad ideas and practices. Maybe some of the ladies got, had, it, had it better, but they are now paying, paying the price of our mistakes. But um, to cut the rambles short, I think the uh, rebuilding really has to go hand in hand with nurturing large scale eco ecosystems back into health. At least that's the only solution that I have found over my 25 years, 20 years in the Arctic and, and uh, Northern societies where we in Snow Change have instigated a program called Landscape Rewilding. That's a very much about reality and senses of reality, where we, by working on the created landscapes and using something we call rewilding, uh, we are able to recreate safe havens for that mind to take a rest, rebuild, and coexist with the ancient forest. Granted, these are pennies, these are small sites, but they do exist. And in many ways, they are like monasteries in the Middle Ages in Europe. They are safeguarding something that's still there, even though it has been so much destroyed elsewhere. With the, with the rewilding um, efforts, are there, are there noticeable changes outside of the area that the rewilding is, is taking place? Like, are you able to see a measurable dif dis, um, difference in, in the immediate vicinity? And then I guess it would get lesser as it goes out, as, as the rest sort of encroaches back in on it. But I think the way that I would frame it is as the rewilding encroaches on everything else. Um, but are you able to sort of see that and, and measure that? That's a very good question. Um, Rewilding often can also be linked with restoration, so you can change these terms, but I'm just using rewilding for the sake of putting the emphasis on trusting natural cycles and succession of, for example, forest or peatlands to come back on their own terms. I guess there are two observations that might be of relevance. Um, some, on some of our sites where we have been working on, the physical comeback of biodiversity has been astounding. Um, for example, there was a peatland that had two bird species when the mining of peat was going on. And then now it's the home of 195 bird species today, after a few years. So these are not trifles, some magical or some made up um, metrics. This is hard data from biologists in these stations that have monitored chick reproduction, how many birds come forwards, what kind of species have come back, 
and and uh, extremely rare waders and and other species as well as comebacks in numbers with 25,000 geese landing there on on their autumn migrations and um, then the offshoot which is your question really has uh, has come to play on the human realm by demonstrating that use of indigenous and, and scientific knowledge in rewilding has made a comeback for many of these sites in our programs it has led many um shall we say new visitors to these sites including our village school um, one of the duck species that comes to our village now onto these rewilded sites is a smew in English, S-M-E-W, and it's a beautiful duck species. And uh, at first the kids at the, these are elementary school children, so they would be learning about smew in a book or maybe online Wikipedia, and they would paint smew in a watercolor. And then on the next day they would go onto this site and actually using binoculars and others they would see this mu for the first time in their lives and, and um, realize what they saw in theory to become reality for them and how how this wonderful bird might be there so there's some radi radiating or or, or um, cascading social reality that attracts then more families, more visitors, up to 1,000 people now that come to these sites a year, in a year. Uh, that's whether they consciously, consciously may not think that, but they are renewing their connections to these birds. They are enjoying these landscapes and um, for the lack of a better term, cleansing themselves of the um, past things. The second thing is that the cascading impact of a rewilding site can happen also on biological terms. So having strong centers that are again in the hands of nature will have spillover effects so that many nesting birds come to neighboring river systems, ponds. Uh, we have seen the comeback of mammals, wolverines, otter, pollinators, um, frog species and lizards and so on and so on. And these are kind of the cascading impacts of restoring a land that still, despite its degradation, retains something. And it's really by tapping into that something that I don't want to name because it's not to be named today, but it's often unseen and it can be worked with if you have traditional knowledge um, co-researchers who can, for example, speak with those kind of elements of nature, the unseen, and also listen what's being said by a site or a place or or being that resides in a place that we can then truly see the cascading benefits where we understand that despite the damages that humans have caused for example on a forest or peatland by if you have the right traditional owners and science working hand in hand beautiful things can come to light i never believed we could have beside the traps a million kilos of carbon a year because of our rewilding or 195 bird species that are now constant feature of our village and and those are the powerful testimonies some of which have been published in peer-reviewed science to talk about the skeptics or to the skeptics because we have to be also 
extremely honest. We can't say any more about the only about the rhetorics or oh everything will be better or it will all go go to hell. I don't personally believe either. I think the future is not set. There's a third way to be done. We just have to embrace it. Okay, um, so we'll go to uh, to Betty now, and and uh, Bill left a, a question in the chat, uh, Betty, about um, the word that you had mentioned before about uh, we seek balance, and if you wanted to speak a little bit about that. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, that's awatsimishkatsup was the word that uh, that speaks to we seek balance. See, uh, we understand uh, We understand that um, the world is interdependent, interconnected, and there's this, the cycles speak to the reciprocity and it uh, focuses on our participation in regards to this, this organic world. So what we do uh, in in terms of our um, in terms of who we are and it's like the big picture the big big picture is that our cultures is all centered around this notion of seeking balance uh, our our daily traditions in terms of how we treat each other the the protocols in terms of how you uh, are with uh, the, the different genders and how you relate in a family, where you, how the, how the home is organized. Uh, it just speaks to that whole notion of through the ages, our ancestors understood these were the ways that we, that we maintain balance, that we maintain good relations. And uh, so it's just all who we are in our culture. I don't know if that answers the question, but in, in, in of course, what I spoke about today was the ceremonies which are central to all of that. And we continue to renew uh, those good relations, seeking balance. And when we offend somebody, we know how to correct it. And we also know that it's not about us, it's about the world in which we live. It's for the continuity of our of our world, and and we're not separate from. Uh, as today we we uh, we continue these ceremonies that that continue to renew those relationships. And as the previous speaker spoke, they're so limited, and uh, and he really challenges the idea of of really are are we are we able to to rebuild these indigenous cultures. And can we, in, in, in Canada, there's 53 distinct languages and 50 of them will be extinct. So that gives us a context for the continued extinction of not only the biodiversity, but for the different lenses in which we need to sustain ourselves as human beings. I think that that ties in really well for me with um, how the language sort of comes about and how how it's a part of each 
uh, culture and the role that the language plays. And as, as a language goes extinct and the, and the people don't, then that has some more, you know, we have more questions and more troubling questions to explore. And, and you know, there's a book that came out recently by uh, Russell Jacoby on, uh, called On Diversity. And a section of that is about how somehow the English language just took over the planet. And uh, I call it sort of a galactic basic. Um, and, and somehow that has, has taken over and how does that interact or when did that language first come to our land? And so um, I'm not sure about uh, other people's history, but the, the first uh, European person in our territory was Simon Fraser. So it's pretty recent. And then I think it was another 30 or 40 years before another person kind of wandered in lost and cold and unprepared for the elements. But um, I, think, I think that those languages tied into those worldviews really highlights for us how, how um, Alejandro's clip showed the connection to, as, they, as, as was mentioned in the clip, uh, we're potato people. And, and giving us a, a bit of a peek at that viewpoint and that worldview and that understanding. Um, and then uh, similar to uh, uh, Betty yours and how it's part of our responsibility and part of this cosmos, as you mentioned uh, previously. And then when we look at how the language came to our, our land and it was uh, this sort of individualistic worldview and a dominance worldview where you could just name a thing and have control over it and and you were sort of uh in charge of everything because you're the exceptional being instead of a part of uh the, the overall being of the cosmos so so thank you that that was um it's good it's got me thinking and, and i love it and so i appreciate it thank you very much um graham would you like to uh comment or respond to anything yeah, lots to uh, to think about, and uh, um, you know, one of the points that that Bill talked about, I guess, was the interconnection between all that was shared. And uh, I really liked the uh, the kind of relational um, sovereignty concept that Alejandro kind of shared, because uh, it also, in my mind, speaks to the uh, the point that that Taro raised about you know the kind of notion. And, and very visual impact of clear cutting the mind and what that means for the connection that that you and Betty just shared about you know the revitalization of language and that's partly why I, I think I um, I raised that as as a solution and I, and I hope that you know in this conversation there was almost zero talk about you know renewable energy a talk about you know um ev cars talking about you know solar panels and i think that really kind of illustrates how how we approach these things differently and i and i think you know it, it's it's an important framing uh you know for you byron just kind of framing the the overarching conversation around people place and time and it reminds me of two things and, and maybe I'll, I'll close with this. Um, so last year uh, the AFN hosted a, a national climate gathering in Whitehorse and uh, we had a keynote speaker from um, Old Crow Yukon from Vantukwichin Territory, Chief Dana Tija Tram. And among everything else he kind of um, walked us through the last 500 years of history 
within 30 minutes kind of deconstructing all of the like assumptions that are found within you know modern economics and byron as you said kind of the the approach that found its way and not only found its way but violently imposed its way on you know the people that were here and um it's not just i, I don't think it's an accident that we're all talking english right now um, it was it was active and and designed and and I think if anything that's what we saw um, uh, today in Cowessis and and otherwise. Um, but what Chief Dana said through that process was really kind of reframing climate as as not a you know a kind of standalone issue but really a people problem. And I think in in this context it uh, you know really um, drives home why we're talking about these things and why all of those different presentations were so interrelated and focused on the role that that we have individually and and not only individually an auntie of mine talks about these concentric circles so the role that we have individually the role that we have within our families our communities and our nations and i you know i think that there's an opportunity following this conversation to think about how do you make those those impacts within the, those cascading um, roles of influence that all of you have um, but it also speaks to your question um, from I Am Legend, is it, is it too late? And I, I think that's an interesting um, question and, you know, something that, that when you work in this space, you feel pretty existential pretty regularly. And I'm always reminded, actually, this, this is, um, you know, some tobacco from another Vantukwichin elder who, uh, you know, the Vantukwichin have been fighting uh, for the protection of the Arctic Wildlife Refuge um, to protect their the, the sacred calving grounds of the pair, uh, porcupine caribou. And we're talking about a community of 300 fighting, you know, international multilateral um, oil companies and, you know, have successfully defended that. And Lorraine, um, which is the elder that always uh, that gave this to me and always tells me that, is that she has hope because there's no other possible uh, way that she can approach these problems. And so I think like in the context of is it too late, um, I don't think uh, there's there's an option to say yes. Are there, you know, substantial changes that are foundational and, um, you know, probably problematic? Absolutely. But if anything, you know, I think the indication is that our people have adapted over thousands and thousands of years and continue to adapt. And so, you know, I maybe leave that with everybody in, you know, the role that that we can all go moving forward. And, and part of, you know, what I think uh, gets to that supporting of that adaptation is really eliminating all the structural barriers to the way in which we can adapt. You know, we used to adapt as Anishinaabe folks through seasonal mobility. And many Indigenous folks like had different camps, didn't have permanent settlements. And now we're stuck in that because of the Indian Act, right? And so our our processes of adaptation have been limited. And, uh, you know, so I think part of what we can do is also see that kind of de-shackling of uh, the colonization project as kind of simultaneous to, you know, the work of, of rebuilding our nations and, and reinvesting in our language and our cultures. And so um, hopefully that that's something that, that, you know, everybody listening can, can get involved and, and help do because it does take everybody and it really starts from, from truth. And so, uh, yeah, Chimiguich for this space um, and for organizing it and really, uh, 
really insightful conversations. Thank you very much. Um, kind of a, I guess, adding on to that, um, <clears throat> when you when you point out like what doesn't come up in the conversation for the night, I think that's really important, and I'm and uh, I think it's awesome that you pointed that out. And I I think um, similar to that is the lens that that we're looking at it from is obviously different from the lens that people would like everyone to look at it from or the lens that's imposed on people. And um, uh, so as I, as I turn it over here to Alejandro, something that I had, that I had thought of was how, how completely different our universes or our cosmos are, where I go to the store in Langley and I pick up a bag of potatoes and it's, I have like one of three options and, and I don't have that relationship. Um, I'll have a similar relationship with something else, but it's not it's not that one. And how completely different my viewpoint is informed by uh, uh, me living on the land instead of with it here in someone else's territory is is different to uh, this this other viewpoint. And how in a previous conversation with Taro, I learned that our one degree here in in Western Canada, where it's quite comfortable, life is really comfortable here. Um, our one degree is about four degrees uh, from him. And that's a much bigger problem than the framing that I get from my media and that's fed to me uh, on a regular basis. And so I'll, I'll, I'll uh, go to Alejandro for some closing remarks there and, and thank you. Yeah, thanks, Byron. Um, I was uh, thinking uh, on Tero's uh, reflections and and I find them profound, but also challengeable. Because I think there's uh, this assumption that traditional is the past. So that we are not going to be the past, obviously, uh, we're never gonna be the past, but we're gonna be the future with the past. So in this circle of rewinding, like he puts, uh, you know, we will recover that 90% of clear cut of the mind. It won't be like the past because time and space is an spiral. We're still in the circle, but not in the same water because the river flows. The water may come back with the rain, but it will be a different time, maybe a different season. So I believe that diversity uh, extends to epistemic diversity. And while, of course, we need to demonstrate certain facts, uh, it doesn't have to be science. We don't have to use the metrics of science to make us believe that what we have achieved with 160 birds is real. Because for some elders, many of those birds may be spirits or maybe just songs that have come back. So we have to respect this epistemic diversity and the different types of literacy that we have. And that's what makes humans what we are, rich, 
in our expressions, uh, in the use of the language, and the different ways we can uh, make things, carve, paint, create, recreate. And that goes with potatoes. And what, what, what we do, we recreate all those colors, shapes, textures, flavors, a smell in the potato because it's something that was close. And we go evolve it like a family. So in other locations, in other places, there will be different things. Or there will be this boreal forest and the birds, you know, for you would be perhaps, you know, a totally different realm. So those dimensions I think needs to be respected. Diversity is key and diversity uh, respecting diversity, I think, is what makes us flourish because we also will respect all relations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, for the sort of closing remarks, I wanted to um, throw out a challenge or uh, I wasn't sure what to do. And then I thought I would rather have a, a more positive message overall, because I think it um, the challenge was already put on the table with the I am legend part and, and was responded to. And so I think one of the things um, Taro mentioned in his clip was um, if, if there's a people that they can be free. And I think I would add on with uh, some of the thoughts and responses and everything that we've had tonight that, um, if there's a people, they can be free and they can also uh, dream. And Taro said in a different uh, part of the interview that um, we just have to imagine what the future still could be. And so I think we can dream better and imagine better. And then uh, I guess the hard part is just making it happen. So uh, thank you everybody and um, have a good night. Thanks so much to Byron and his guests for taking the time to offer their valuable insights and for creating the conversation for tonight's broadcast. We'd also like to thank you for tuning in, and we'd like to invite you back to our next Viewpoints on Thursday, July 22nd. It will be on immigration and climate change. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback on what you've heard, drop us a line at info at ruralcreativity.ca. On behalf of all of us at the Canadian Centre for Rural Creativity, stay safe, be kind to each other and to the earth, and we look forward to connecting with you again soon.